This is a Wild Gate Production Podcast. Welcome to the D&D World! Meet you by the art room door In a circle on the hallway floor I made up a new map last night It's got a dragon and a wizard fight I basically want this to be like the thing I run for my drop and drop out games but it's pretty daunting to come up with that much stuff I've got like the level themes so far mm-hmm. um, but actual mapping i'm probably going to start for like sub levels i'm just going to take work i've already done for other dungeons and just repurpose that i've never run mm-hmm. a mega dungeon but it sounds really fun it does right like it just especially because you do a lot of stuff with kids and you do a lot of drop in drop out stuff just to have a thing that you make and it's or like like what bad mike does he always runs b1 at north texas that's like his module you know i, I want i want to create that but this is not the Mega Dungeon Podcast. I guess it could be at some point. This will be the Mega Dungeon Podcast. It's but not today. A future episode. <laughs> this is actually the Save or Die Podcast, a podcast about classic Dungeons and Dragons. I'm one of your hosts, Crispy, a mysterious blood-stained arch that actually will heal the party instead of hurting them. And I'm one of your hosts, Carl. I'm a name-level magic user, and I can't remember any of my apprentices' names. <laughs> And I am Courtney. I am a thief that likes to steal magic potions. And today we're going to be continuing our class act series with magic users. But before we get into that, what have you guys been doing in gaming lately? So the only gaming I've done since Scary Guy X Day is we played theater of the mind dnd on the way to an amusement park on labor day where one of our kids dm'd on the way there Mm -hmm. and then on the way home the other kid dm'd on the way home and of course they fought about who got to finish their dungeon because neither one of them were completely done with their dungeon in the amount of time it took us to get there (laughs) so they were really excited about running their own dungeons we tried to convince them that we could play again and continue the (laughs) the quest that it didn't have to be the end of it, but it was the end of their turn at that moment. So it was a lot of fun and just shows you can play D&D anywhere. Uh, did they like prep out a dungeon? Did they have like a whole thing set up or was it all just sort of like off the cuff? It was off the cuff, but they had it pretty well laid out. Yeah, they both uh, took part in the dungeon master camp that I ran as part of the summer camps that I was running at the local game store here. Uh, and they both mapped out some dungeons during that and there were elements from those dungeons for what they did in the car on the way to the amusement park yeah it was mostly just they they modified those a little bit or what you know in in true dungeon master fashion (laughs) Mm -hmm. they um they like to kind of railroad you to certain areas (laughs) but I mean, they're nine and six, so I guess we'll <laughs> cut them some slack. Yeah, but they they have a really cool thing they want you to do, so they're going right. to make sure you do it. Are you sure you want to go there? <laughs> Are you sure you don't want to go to the pet shop? <laughs> There's a pet shop in town. Of course there is. In case you need a dragon shark Ooh, for a pet. I want a dragon shark for a pet. Carl, what have you been doing in gaming? So I want to tell this story because it's 
I think it's adorable. Um, we, uh, my, my daughter has uh, horse riding lessons. And mm-hmm. the instructor has a son around Connor's age. And so while the instructor is teaching Emily to ride horses, uh, Connor plays with this other kid. Um, and so Connor looked at me while playing with this other kid and said, Dad, do you think he'd want to play Dungeons and Dragons? And Aww. I said, uh, I don't know, buddy, but you could ask him. And he said, Dad, can you ask him? Oh, <laughs> that's got adorable. A, got a little nervous. Got a little nervous to make the request. But I asked, uh, and I, he said, yeah. And so we played um, a little bit of a... a twist on the Mincer solo dungeon. You know, it's always neat to see someone play for the first time and, and really wrap their head around this concept of like, I can do anything. Like they first think of it as a board game and then maybe as a video game or whatever they're familiar with. They think about it in those terms. And then they realize like, I can just jump up and down and yell for five minutes. And that's what I do in this game. And it doesn't, it, it's not limited at all. I can, I can just dig a hole for, you know, that I, can, I can do whatever I want. And, you know, and it, it, it's neat to see those things click in a new player. And that's going to be in 20 years when that kid has his own podcast and they ask him <laughs> how he got started in gaming. He can tell that story from his perspective. In a horse barn. <laughs> in a horse barn in 2019 before the robots attack. <laughs> I uh, have just been playing some first edition, which has been pretty fun. I'm a, I'm a ninth level cleric. Oh, wow. So, yeah. Well, we're playing the GDQ series, so like it's a high level module. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then other than that, I've been working on Castle Ipsirk. <laughs> so that's the pronunciation. I was not yeah. sure. <laughs> uh, which, like all great mega dungeons, is just my name backwards. <laughs> Every uh, person I've given the name to, or just like, oh my god, that's of course it's that. Yeah, I guess I would have to make uh, Castle the Rack. <laughs> well, so we originally had talked about for the community game doing something like collaborating on something. And I was like, oh, we can make Castle Carl's P. And you're like, no, I don't want to do that. <laughs> yeah, no. I, I... <laughs> that's what this that's what this idea was born out of. Courtney's would be Yintrock, which is fantastic. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, my goodness. Courtney, make that's a mega dungeon. Your name. <laughs> Get right on it. now, I got. I have to go. <laughs> All right, let's we'll talk about wizards without you. <laughs> I'll um, be back for the next dwarf episode. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, speaking of wizards' castles, <laughs> it's because every mega dungeon is the it's the ruins of some wizards' thing. Yeah, the reason for that is because. After creating these crazy dungeons with these crazy traps and crazy monsters and crazy rooms that don't really make any sense together, uh, Gary Gygax decided the only thing that made sense to be behind this was a crazy old wizard. <laughs> yeah. I'm okay with that. Uh, there was some talk on like the BX Facebook page about dungeon design. Someone was like, it's so dumb that dungeons are designed this way. And then I was like, no, like... It doesn't have to be 100% a re- like <sighs> I don't know I don't it's, think your dungeon has not, to be a blueprint. It's not historical reenactment and yeah. it's not a logical narrative creation. It's a game. 
<laughs> yeah. And th- Do you get this... that way as well? That like anything that's not like a like oh this isn't a realistic replication of how things work in reality. Like I just always take those as bad faith arguments of like oh the PCs are murderers and genocidal maniacs because they go and kill the kobold babies. And uh, any PC going to a new town would upset the economy and ruin it, causing massive inflation followed by a depression. And it's like, no, <laughs> it's not. <laughs> I think there are, there are different things that people want from the game. And I think for the people who desperately want uh, historical accuracy, uh, you know, d and not great at that. And there are games that are designed to be more historically accurate than Dungeons and Dragons is. Um, yeah, like Fatal. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, I think a lot of that's just it's 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 designed to do what it does, and when you accept that, I think it runs a lot better. This is totally yeah. off topic. <laughs> we haven't even started our topic. Uh, so, all right. Anyways, wizards. Uh yeah, so let's 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 jump into it. Talk about some magic users right quick. Do we want to talk about uh literary wizards versus some magic users before I before we decide what we're gonna d- like d- jump into first? Um, you know they they're like a pretty pretty core part of D and D. Um, the second class. Yeah. It, yeah, because it goes fighting man, magic user, then cleric, doesn't it? What I mean by the second class is I believe everybody was essentially fighting men until mm-hmm. somebody decided they wanted spells uh, and to be able to uh, have magical powers. And there's a cool video on YouTube. Uh, the video is on the channel David McGarry's Dungeon. And the title of the video is The World's First Wizard. And they are interviewing Pete Gaylord. And he was the first person to play a magic user in Dungeons and & Dragons. And he talks about his spells he made up. and uh, this Super berry juice, right? Yeah, super berries. I have seen this episode, or yeah. this video. Yeah. yeah, super berries. Yeah, uh, super interesting to watch. And uh, just the... Um, creative freedom in early Dungeons Dragons. There's something really neat about hearing about that. Because uh, we kind of get locked into boxes uh, nowadays. I mean, even when we go back and play these old versions, <laughs> we get locked into boxes. And it's it's neat to see the, the creativity that was there at the start. Yeah. I, I mean, so, like, magic users have been a part of the game in all its forms since Chainmail. Mm-hmm. Were they called magic users in Chainmail, or were they wizards? I think they were magic users, but you know, you had like different classes, you had sorcerers and warlocks and you know, all the different level names for OD and D wizards. I guess I don't have an elaborate way of explaining that these are like a super fundamental part of dungeons and dragons. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just, uh, and they are called wizards and chainmail, not magic users. Okay. Um, I think it's just an intrinsic part of the lore around fantasy. I mean, there's almost, um, it's almost like the first step into fantasy. If you have a, a, if you have a, um, a world that's completely historical in whatever thing you're reading or, or writing, if any fiction or television show that's completely 
historically based, but has one fantasy element. That fantasy element is almost always magic. Almost always. I think that goes back to like what we were saying in the fighters episode, because every culture has some form of like a magic man. You know, you you have like and it could be divine magic. It could be arcane magic. You know, so you have like shamans, you have like voodoo men, you have, you know, druids and, and witches in uh, like Western European, you have like Onmyoji mystics in like Japanese culture or like, you know, demon hunting priests in Chinese culture. Like this archetype is just like a human archetype. The yeah. the person who can can tap into the forces that like shape reality and bend them to their will. It's it's extremely pervasive. Mm-hmm. Now, here's something I'm super interested in. Courtney, you mm-hmm. did not grow up playing Dungeons and Dragons or grow up reading Lord of the Rings or grow up obsessed with fantasy uh, Correct. like I did and like Crispy did. Mm-hmm. So I assume because it's so pervasive, you still have a, a mental image from your childhood of what a wizard would be. Um, I'm curious what that is. Of what a wizard looks like? Yeah, or is, or what they do. I think do. it's more like your Merlin, like, uh, you know, your pointed hat with stars on it, and your, they have a wand. I mean, that's, the, I mean, as a kid, that's what I would think of as a wizard, is, you know, a Merlin figure. I mean, mm-hmm. that's probably what I would say. Yeah, no, that's perfectly, that's that's totally fine. That's actually um, the reference they use in Basic Expert, is uh, uh, Merlin the Magician, is the point <laughs> of reference they use. Uh, so pretty much the same, <laughs> which is a common thing. So I'm sure they were trying to do go with the most common wizard to help people make the connection. Mm-hmm. That idea of a wizard definitely predates D and D. Oh, well, the sure. pointed hat and robe. So, like, you know, nowadays you have wizard who. I think would be more like your Harry Potter kind of magic user. Then you have like warlocks and sorcerers. Mm-hmm. I think sorcerer would definitely be more like a, um, more like a, uh, Merlin type character. And then, um, you have, you know, the, the warlock, which I think would be like a, an Elric or like a Constantine kind of thing, you know? So you have like, learns magic through study, learns magic through innate power, and learns magic through a deal with the devil. I think these things are all doable. Like, these different origins are all doable within the framework of classic D&D, mm-hmm. which I think is a testament to sort of, like, the more toned-down, no-subclass, or minimal subclass um, mm-hmm. sort of style it has. Right. And, and I think, I mean, possibly... Maybe not, because there's there's definitely indications that they were going to add other magic-using classes. But I wonder if the switch from wizard in Chainmail to magic user in OD&D wasn't to keep it more vague. Um, I think it is. I, I definitely do think that just the change in terminology um, to magic user, so you're not necessarily Merlin, but you are someone who uses magic. Right, and so it doesn't put exactly that image of the pointy hat Merlin in your head. Now, wizard is still um, a name level thing, um, so maybe not. <laughs> uh, so when yeah. it, when they go to to the um, 
the level naming. I think it's ninth level as wizard and maybe tenth. Yeah, I mean, but like the halfling's name level is sheriff. He doesn't get like some six guns. <laughs> well, there are sheriffs in in uh, Lord of the Rings in the Shire. I know, I know. <laughs> Sorry, you've been corrected. No humor here, Chris. We were talking about wizards. There's you know, no, you, you, there's no time you for reach jokes. Eighth level, and then you're just like, what tarnation? Wesley <laughs> <laughs> Rabbit. Courtney, now that you have played and been exposed to more fantasy things, because I'm sure, like. You know, every person on Earth at this point has seen the Lord of the Rings movies. They made a, a trillion dollars. What do you think of when you think of Wizard now? Because I still think, even in, like, BX D&D, I, I still think of, like, the frail, like, robe-wearing person. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I mean, I, maybe not entirely Gandalf, but, yeah, it's like a robe and a staff. And I always say, you know... I don't ever want to be a magic user, but I always want a magic user with my party. <laughs> so, as long um, as someone else doing the work, it's fine. <laughs> awesome. I, I always want a magic user going with my party, but I don't want it to be my character for various reasons. But um, So I, I think they're important. I think they have a place. I think they're needed. But yes, I still picture them as tall, skinny, uh, not not made for fighting they stay in the back they cast their spells over everybody um and i think that it's that way for a reason i mean that's typically how their stats run you protect them they are important you don't want them in the front where they could get hurt because the party wants to protect them because they do have a place in the game and in your party um so i don't think they're just stuck in the back because they're always frail and fragile um, even though sometimes they are, um, but I think they're in the behind the front line for for protection because because of their importance as well. Hmm. I just don't want to play them. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm looking at name levels now that I said it. I think it was ninth or tenth. It's eleventh uh, in OD&D. Okay. Eleventh mm-hmm. level magic user is wizard, but I think it's interesting because once we know first level magic user is called a medium, and then it's seer, <laughs> conjurer. Thurgist, Thaumaturgist, Magician, Enchanter, Warlock, Sorcerer, Necromancer, and then Wizard. And Necromancer is a term that's uh, uh, obviously uh, the the idea of what a Necromancer is has been heavily skewed. Uh, the actual original term of Necromancer is someone that speaks with the dead, uh, which is what a medium is. So isn't that kind of interesting that, that is. you go from first to tenth to be the same thing? Well, <laughs> There's a really like- good Medium is oh, kind of like a JV necromancer. <laughs> right? Like, if if you introduce two people and this one's a medium and that one's a necromancer, you're not going to... I mean... <laughs> there is definitely Who would you rather have tried to help the NYPD solve crimes? You know, like... Well, I think I think these days when people think necromancer, they think of someone who r- raises people from the dead. And it's possible that... Um, uh, that was the pervasive idea of it back in '74 as well. I, I'm not sure when that when that really got skewed to mean uh, more than someone who just speaks with the dead. I well, wanted to talk about um, so talking about like you know, are you a warlock? Which I think has a 
its own connotation versus being a medium versus being a necromancer. I think a magic user can be all of those things, but unlike a cleric, I don't think that their spell list really uh, at lower levels reflects that. I don't know, like the spell list for the magic user is so weirdly D&D centric. Does that make sense? Well, uh, and this is something that we can kind of reference as both a, a literary thing and a rules thing. Much of the concept of magic comes from Jack Vance in mm-hmm. Dungeons and Dragons. And many of the spells themselves uh, comes from Jack Vance. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Um, so it, it is kind of intrinsic uh, to that universe. But um, it, it's the, the two main influences on Dungeons and Dragons magic is Jack Vance and Doctor Strange. Uh, it's pretty uh, inescapable. The way those spells are named and the way that they're uh, thought about and the way that they're prepared, uh, that's all Vance and, and Doctor Strange. That's where those two... Those two converge into Dungeons and Dragons magic. You know, we we have so many different ways to think about it now because there are there are a thousand role playing games and there's computer and video games that also have magic systems in them. So, uh, you know, the reason they went with the Vancean casting is because it was the most easily gamified. Huh? Yeah. Every so, I was watching something. Uh, I think it was uh, Jim. Jim Morris, I think his name. He uh, he's like a DM who who does some OD and D stuff on YouTube recently, hmm. and uh, he was talking about like the magic system. They re- all, I think he went to Caltech, which I, that was the school that made Warlock, wasn't it? Which was like an OD and D hack. I may have this wrong. If I do email me questions, info. There we go. That's a plug for that. Uh, anyways, they had like tooled a magic point system and I've seen spell points um, done in various different ways. I've never liked it as much as I like fancy and magic. Yeah. I think fancy and casting uh, does work. I think there's a reason why uh, it's, it's been so uh, hard to escape. And I think people have tried to escape it and uh, you know, I, I'm actually trying to escape it in a, a Dwimmer star uh, I'm I'm working on a mana system, and that's obviously been tried before, and I'm foolish enough to try it myself. So yeah, Crispy, you're right. I'll, I'll double check that the Warlock was at Caltech in 1975. Ha ha! My weird D&D memory doesn't fail me again. So I I want to jump back real quick. Courtney had mentioned about the prototypical image of a wizard is like a a frail old man in robes carrying a staff which in some versions of D&D wizards can't use or magic users can't use rather well not not really they they that so in some versions of D&D staffs aren't weapons could they be defensive yes uh staff is not in B but it is in X and in X wizards can use it Ah, okay. So never mind. This is <laughs> well. Actually, no, because like in OD and D, the selection of weapons that um, wizards get—I keep saying wizards. I know people are going to lambast me. I'm sorry. I grew up playing third edition. They, hey, they were wizards and chainmail, so it's even older yeah. school. Get on Crispy's level, listener. <laughs> um, so they can use you know 
darts. They can use daggers. They can use uh, staves. I almost said staffs. That's not right. <laughs> like, and if you're using like, so I'm looking at Swords and Wizardry Complete right now. If you use all the rate of fire, like, you know, magic user with darts is pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, in your home games, what do you stick to? Now, I do know that darts aren't a thing in BX. It would just be daggers, but like the idea is there. I want to say staff is not in OD&D. Uh, it might be in supplements because I'm looking. No, quarter staff is in chainmail and OD&D. Quarter staff's a thing. When I was playing uh, chainmail in that play by email game, like that was one of the things available by Claire. Okay, well, it's not in the three little brown books as a okay. weapon. And and that carries over to BX because um, staffs are magical items, and uh, uh, they are introduced in expert as a weapon, but not as a uh, not in basic. Um, mm-hmm. So that's just kind of weird. I use dagger and staff, and okay. club. Weirdly enough, <laughs> it's not that weird because you know what I'll let them use crossbows yeah i'm against that all right well fine god be like that (laughs) wait you let magic users use a crossbow yeah that's the thing about crossbows is like they're meant to be easy to use that's why they replaced bows i guess you have a point maybe if it was a small party yeah i mean like i don't always let them it it is it is just an aesthetics things for me it it feels aesthetically unpleasing to have a magic user walking around shooting crossbows at everybody. It just doesn't feel magical. I would rather give them a low-powered magic wand before I gave them a crossbow. (laughs) That's fair enough. How do you feel about wizards with swords? That's the hot-button issue. Is it not similar? Just an aesthetic thing? Well, I mean, like, so, you know, the, the wizard who wields a sword... Is definitely a fantasy archetype. Well, maybe they get like a negative because they wouldn't be as skilled at it as a fighter. I think that would be played out in the to hit rules. Like the fighter has the higher to hit rule or the better to hit progression, I should say. Yeah, but that doesn't affect anything until fourth level. Yeah, but you're also more. Yeah, the fact is uh, fighting ability is measured by hit points. I mean, that's just the case. Uh, You know, fighter also has the higher hit die. Right, 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 right. So, I mean, like that doesn't really the the, the hit roll and the I I really do believe in old school D&D. The measurement of how good you are at fighting is your hit points uh, more than any bonuses you get or anything like that. I Um, think there's like a lot of compounded like systematic things like mm -hmm. so you have higher hit hit points and then you know greater weapon selection better armor selection and then also strength being a prime requisite especially if you're keeping it to just bx you know like you may have a a magic user who has a a higher than average strength but like if that's your only good rule and you get to choose where it goes you're gonna put that in your intelligence because you're a wizard and that's better for you it's your prime requisite so like i think there are actually several like compounding layers that make it so that the fighter will be the best at fighting uh, aside from the hit die but i do think the hit yeah i think you're right like i don't think you're wrong 
I said that whole thing I about wizards they... being able to use staffs, and I'm not sure that's true. Oh, see, I've... man, Carl, you're making me second guess myself. I mean, I think they could have a staff at least for defense, right? Even, if... I mean, anyone can swing a stick. Yeah, like that's the thing. You give a four-year-old a stick, they're not necessarily a trained fighter, but they'll hit you with it. Yeah. That's how <laughs> my little cousin did it. My niece's quinceanera. That's, I made that story. <laughs> that, that never happened. You think you're a pinata? So in um, uh, it's in later versions where they're allowed the staff, I guess. But uh, So in the rule cyclopedia, it says, Weapons, dagger only. Optional, DM's discretion. Staff, blowgun, flaming oil, holy water. Net, thrown rock, sling, and whip, and uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm, I, 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 I'm fine with staff, and I'm fine with dagger, and for some reason, I'm fine with club. I think just because if they they're in a situation where they have to improvise a weapon up, and they you know whatever, grab a stick or a, a table leg or whatever, I feel like that should be allowed. But yeah, uh, well, like Courtney just said, like if you give a four year old a stick, they'll hit you with it. Are you opposed to slings? That I, I'm opposed to giving them a ranged weapon and letting them sit in the back and shoot a bunch of ranged attacks out because it changes what the class is, and they are no longer your this kind of auxiliary, you know, high high uh, high high, high reward. I I don't know if that's what I'm trying to say. I think it's more like your high power use rarely type of mm. class right they have incredible powers that you hold on to for uh precarious situations and yeah. once you give them something to just fire off from the back of the party they now become your kind of auxiliary damage doer uh so what are you against you're not against throwing rocks but you're against I'm against, against I'm against throwing rocks. I'm I, it's 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 again it's just an aesthetic thing. It is this thing where I feel like it changes the way the game feels. It is not a it is not a um logical argument at all. I mean, I think logically if they can use a dagger, they can use a sword in combat. There I mean like there's to be a skillful fighter with a dagger takes just as much, if not more, expertise than to be a skillful fighter with a sword. Um, because if your orc that you're fighting is swinging a sword at you and you're trying to attack it with a dagger, that's more difficult. It's not easier. It's way more difficult to try to get in there with a dagger and get at that orc. Um so it's 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 not a it's not a logic thing. It's just this aesthetic that I've clung to of the wizard not having a sword swinging around. So then the wizard just stands in the back and goes, "Good job, guys!" Until like a big bag comes. Well, I, I think I think it's more I I don't want the focus to be on combat or what classes can do in combat. So when you when you look at the class list and you go, what do they do in combat? Wizard's not a combat class, so you don't you don't necessarily just look at what it can do in combat and what is its role in combat. And when you when you distill it to that, you make it to where the wizard is like your I don't know, it just doesn't feel very satisfying to me to have the wizard peppering people with arrows or throwing rocks at them. Uh it to me it it feels less like an interesting choice. Hmm. I 
agree to an extent. My counter argument is that if you don't let them have something to do in combat, I mean, would you let them throw daggers or is it just stab stab? I think it would just be stab stab. See, I don't. Then you reduce them to here's my, you know, especially a first level wizard. Here's my one cool thing I get to do. Like I, I get to sit out for all of the game except for this one problem, which I can kind of overcome. Well, but then, and, but you're, but you, I, I think you're still thinking of it as a game where combat is king, and right, and if, that's what I was about to say. If there's exploration and if there's interesting things to find out and interesting uh, books to read or notes to find and problems to solve, because I believe a first level party uh, completely fighters and, and, and dwarves and halflings and clerics, all of them can survive about one combat. Yeah. I mean, so the wizard casts one spill Well, the fighter has one D eight hit points. So if they take one solid sword strike, they could also be straight out of the game, you know? So it's it's not something in old school or in classic D&D that I think is necessarily as true as when you get to later versions of the game where fighters kind of given a lot more powers to sort mm-hmm. of uh, mitigate this this power level difference. and And in those games, oftentimes... Magic users are still kept really weak at low levels, and so it seems like the magic user with their low spell count aren't really up to snuff at low levels, and and fighters are just outclassing them, and you got to wait. And while that's still true in classic D anD D, it calls it out no D anD D. It's not quite as severe because a fighter is essentially somebody that has possibly up to eight, maybe a little bit more hit points. Um, if they have a high constitution and row really well, mm-hmm. but you know, uh, you know, they take one stab from a goblin, uh, who's using a sword and taking one D eight damage and it's a crap shoot, you know, it's a crap shoot for the entire party. So that one spell, while it, uh, is just a one spell that the, the magic user can do in combat, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean their staying power is much less than the fighter who can possibly only take one sword strike. Well, see, I wasn't even thinking it as like, like their one spell as a combat spell. I was thinking more like, you know, they have so first level list, you know, uh, they've got Sean person, they've got detect magic, they've got hold portal, they have light protection mm-hmm. from eagle, uh, eagles. Yes. Protection from eagles, protection from evil, uh, read magic, read languages, sleep and shield and magic missile. So like, I think most of those are not really um a couple of them are combat centric but a lot of them are more like solving a puzzle or a mm-hmm. problem that mm-hmm. you're some other obstacle and it's like i did my thing and now i'm just gonna hide because like i've played a few classic D low level wizards and like being able to throw daggers from a from the back has it's always been awesome <laughs> And like a thing, it's like, all right, I get to kind of contribute. Well, I do house rule some stuff with wizards. Okay. And so uh, one of the things I, I house rule is I don't have fancy in casting in my D&D games. I uh, have them cast spells from a spell book. And if it's in their spell book, they can cast it. 
Um, so so they, you do like spontaneous casting? Yeah, they do not prepare spells. They have their spell book with them. They cast from their spell book. And their spell book, because of its magical construction, uh, can withstand the energy going through it from the magic user and not lose the spell or, or dissipate like a scroll would. Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. So... Uh, they also, I, I don't do the one spell at first level and it goes up. You find spells in my games and you add them to your spell book at a monetary cost. And you get three spells at first level. Um, so those are just some things that kind of open it up a little bit. Um, but I think before I would have them throwing daggers or throwing rocks, I would I would give them... A, a magic wand at low level or, or something else having a few scrolls uh, or, or possibly even borrowing from homes and using their scroll construction uh, rules where you can have a first level magic user scroll for just a hundred gold pieces. It's not mm-hmm. that expensive um, to purchase. And because magic users have to purchase so little at first level because they're not using weapons or not using armor, they could possibly uh, get themselves a good scroll to start with. Yeah, I've always I've always thought that the rules for magic item creation in BX were like way too punishing. Mm-hmm. I much prefer Holmes or OD and D, where you know if you take a week, spend a hundred gold, you can make a spell, um, as opposed to BX, which is you have to wait till level nine. Yeah, and I think it's almost it it's almost maybe coming from that and I don't know but I think maybe it's coming from that desire to have a real world consistency a logical verisimilitude where if first level wizards were able to create these magic items then the world would be flooded with magic items and you could possibly just sell magic items and set up your whole other shop um, you know it, it, it's not necessarily a gamist approach but a a uh, you know, real real realism, verisimilitude type approach. Here's the thing, though: you have to, if you're going to read uh, from a scroll that you didn't create, you have to cast read magic on it, mm-hmm. but just once. Yeah, and then you can read it. You know, for 20 minutes, you can read everything. But no, 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 no. I, I, my understanding of the rule is you cast it once, and you can read that scroll forever. Yeah, but uh, so. You can read it forever. Read magic lasts for 20 minutes. So you read as many scrolls as you can within a minute, and then you can cast from that scroll that you've read. I don't know. It's weird. It, it is a weird, like, uh, it doesn't make much sense. But, like, you know, it, the way, the reason that magic shops don't exist, I think a magic shop in a BX game should exist that sells scrolls to low level magic users personally. Um, I'm fine with the purchasing of magic items. I wouldn't necessarily make it a magic shop. You know, that kind of that kind of integration within the normal economy of the town. And 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 it's not it's not necessarily a, a, a realism argument. It's just the kind of like it doesn't seem as cool. It doesn't seem as cool if you go to the blacksmith and next door is the magic shop. I think it should be. You don't a, think like a cool wizard shop filled with like monkeys paws and like shrunken heads. No, no, no. See, what I'm I think that is. It's, really cool <laughs> no, no no i'm saying i think it should be outside of town on the outskirts somewhere i'm saying mm-hmm. like th- there's an uh 
the old witch lives on the uh, edge of of civilization, and you can go to go to her to get magical items. But but I don't want it necessarily to be like, oh yeah, that's Crazy Bob's discount. Uh, you don't want it to be store. commercialized. Yeah, I mean, it just it just seems neater if it's if it's somehow separated from civilization. There's an old wizard's tower up on the hill, and maybe he'll teach you or sell you some magic. But what do you feel about not... the sage in town then? Because I would say the sage would. Like, you know, the guy who who works at the old library. I don't know. Like, I, 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 Carl, I don't agree with you. What if it's a magic shop where the front of the store is your basic, you know, fake type magic tricks, but you have to figure out how to get to the back of the store where the weird real magic items are, like a diagon alley kind of thing. I guess, yeah, like where the front of the store is just like your trick cars, like your, kids, your, your kids floating toys. coins. Yeah, yes, yeah. Here's a, a, a puff ball and three cups, and you can <laughs> you can really wow your friends, little Timmy. And then right. little Timmy's like, but what about a uh, what about a uh, what if I wanted to uh, you know murder a demon? <laughs> and then they're like, oh. Come to the back. He says, <laughs> Merlin, Merlin, Merlin. And he says, oh, okay. <laughs> That's the code word. Three times. Because I definitely think, I think there's the argument that where if you had a magic shop, like, quote unquote, uh, in your D&D world, like, if you're going for realism, like, what the peasants would want from a magic shop would be, like, you know, love potions and, like, <laughs> powder that makes your crops grow bigger and stuff like that but i i don't think that those two i and the shop that sells you know scrolls and like potions i don't think those things are have to be mutually exclusive i think that like both can exist in the same locale yeah, but I think they can they can go out to the outskirts of town and seek the old witch just like you can. I, I just for some reason I like making it separate, and maybe it's because the travel towards it presents um, opportunities Mystery. for for encounters or things to happen, you know. And yeah, it just seems a little bit more mysterious if it, if it's just if it's just on the corner, then it it seems less interesting to me it, i'm not making the argument that it's just on the corner it could be like in a dark alley in the seedy part of town like and you have to go down i don't know like i i, I think i think the argument could be made that like there's there's encounters that we had finding the curio shop that like sure. you know s- sells actual magic no yeah that's fine I would still put it outside of town, personally. <laughs> but but I don't care what you do in your games. We're just arguing well, in geography. I mean, in my game, it's in town. <laughs> this is the dumbest. <laughs> I'm fine. I'm fine with it. All right, everybody, send your votes in. <laughs> so, questions at saverdie.com. How do right? I, uh, No, it's info. <laughs> <laughs> Questions One of these days. at info. Oh, I want to know okay. your vote. Is the magic There's... store in town or is it out of town? Yeah, that's important. There's always on Sod been a host who messes up <laughs> somebody's website or email. It's okay. It's just part of the course. What? Just playing you, the part. What do y'all feel about magic script and read magic and every every magic user having their own magical language that they do their writing in? How do y'all feel about that? <laughs> 
I like and dislike it. I've seen a lot of compelling articles that say like, oh, your your first level magic users only spell that they get should be read magic. And then you will put in their path for the day scrolls. Mm-hmm. Like the the utility of having read magic paired as your only spell. Like I've seen really compelling arguments for that. I I love the idea of fancy magic, especially if you go like if you go super fancy with it, where like if you look at a page of a wizard spell book, like the edges of it are crawling and it looks like the the script is trying to escape the paper and get like real weird and eldritch with it. Courtney, what do you think about it? So whether or not different types of magic users read different types of magic? No. So like per the rules, um, every single magic user, even though they're writing the same exact spell, they have their own set of runes that they write their magic in. And it's different from any other magic user that's ever written that spell. And so that's why read magic exists because you have to find their spells and then read their magical runes and then translate it to yours. Makes sense. Like, I mean, it's the same as like different dialects and languages. I mean, right? Am I not understanding? My linguist brain just kicked in. You're thinking of idiolex? I'm sorry. Oh, no, that's fine. Like, correct you, but it's like. (laughs) That's that's the term for it is idiolect. Um, I did just think of a dumb idea for like the reason why you would have to do that is in like what read magic is actually doing, and in that like um, your your magic scrolls are like like uh, mathematical proofs, and like you know this is like how to make a fireball, and you have like the proof for how it works, mm-hmm. but you don't know it if, it if it actually works unless you check the work. And what read magic is, is it lets you access the arcane, like, textbooks, like, teacher section answer key. <laughs> I'm super into this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, like, if you have a scroll and, like, you you know, you see, like, the formula for how to make a fireball. And you're like, I don't know if this checks out. So you cast read magic. And then, like, at the bottom of the page, upside down in red text. <laughs> Uh, well, the dumbest thing I've ever said. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm I'm super into it's the, the idea. Answer, it's the answer key, and then you flip the scroll upside down, and you like make sure it matches. I'm I'm super into the idea of like the sacred geometry, the math of the universe is what magic is. Uh, I love math magic. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, uh, to me, it it is it is the math uh the math magic this this math magicians that uh cast their math magic they are essentially using higher functioning magical language magical uh symbols to pull energy into their universe that exists on outer planes like that's kind of how i picture these magical constructs uh, so i i lean away in BX from the one spell or the Vancey in casting. You're not preparing spells, but I super lean into the the magical languages that each wizard mm-hmm. have. And and being uh finding a scroll or a magic user's book and and not necessarily wanting to cast read magic right then because you don't have necessarily all of the spell slots that you have for the day that you don't want to use them up. Um but uh 
I like the idea of it being like this magic user computed it and understood it just slightly different than you did. And uh, they're, yeah, so it is kind of like the same thing, really. I mean, I am, I, you're checking the, you're checking the work and seeing if you can understand how they are pulling these energies in. Yeah, I, I really like that idea. That's like a, it's a neat way of explaining how it actually works. Do you guys, would you let wizards, there I go again. Uh, would you let your magic users go, like, do you let them go into the dungeon with their spell book? Because I always have, but I'm prepping for this mega dungeon and I'm starting to come around on the hand waving, getting back like each session being its own adventure. Mm -hmm. And so you leave your spell books at home. And then if you finish for the night, you kind of hand wave going back to town. It's an option. I, Maybe you can take a I'm, reader's digest version. <laughs> <laughs> Cause like uh, sometimes, you know, when you think of spell books, you just think of like, you know, a, a book, just like a regular, like, maybe like 12 by nine or like 13 by 10, like larger than a normal. Yeah. Book. I think of like this giant encompassing thing, but it wouldn't have to be necessarily. Yeah. Well, like that's the thing is like rules is written from what I, sources I've seen is that they are like big giant, like illuminated manuscript books. In OD and D and in Holmes, I believe in both of those, it's suggested that uh, magic spell books are left out of the dungeon. Mm -hmm. And that's why you prepare uh, your spells and, and, and then leave and your spell books are away from you. And they are, you know, huge, giant tomes. Uh, in BX, it doesn't say one way or the other whether you can take your spell book or not. Um, and I, because of the way I run magic users, where they are casting directly from their spell book, obviously they take them in my games. Um, but that's just the way that I, I've kind of answered the question of, of how, how magic works in my game. You're, you're still using the formula and, and reciting the formula, but when you do it from your book, the book sustains. And when you use it from a scroll while the scroll is able to, and it's, it's special. The scroll is magic. It's not just ordinary paper. There is magical mm -hmm. elements to it. That magic isn't as strong as the magic of a spell book, and the scroll is destroyed in the process, where the, where the, the energy flowing through the spell book, uh, because of its stronger magic, it's held together. So obviously in my games, yeah, they take them to the dungeon. Yeah. Now, have you ever, like... So, I, I, I get the feeling that you're not the kind of person to do this, but, like... Messing with a wizard spell book, like taking it away from them or having something bad happen. Oh, to I'm it. totally the kind of person to do that. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, yeah. You can, huh. you can, you can definitely lose your spell book, and you, uh, and, and if you do, uh, you have to uh, get a new one, and it is a financial money pit. <laughs> yeah, because uh, well, yeah, in every version of D and D, it's a financial money pit to replace your spell book. Mm -hmm. But I think that's the argument for leaving it at home, for sure. But Carl, I don't think you would be the type of DM that if the wizard, the magic user rolls a one, they lose their spell book. They would have to do something. Oh, or put well, themselves in a yeah, 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 correct bad situation. Yeah, uh, you are know, are uh, spell books in your world waterproof? What if what if they have to fjord a river? <laughs> oh yeah, I mean they're powerful enough to withstand. I mean they're they're um uh to some extent, fireproof. They get a saving throw. So, like, um, 
they're they're not regular books. They withstand magical energies from outer planes sourcing through them. They they can they can withstand getting wet. All right, that's fair. How do you do your spell selection in your games? Because uh, in some versions of D and D of classic D and D, you have you know the minimum and maximum amount you can learn and the percent chance to learn each spell. I've done uh, in my X two game any anyone who I was doing spontaneous casting there as well, but uh, you know you had the number of spells you could cast per day, but then you had a number of like a flat number that you knew that you could use for your spell slots. What do you prefer? Uh, I really like the system that is in Holmes and in AD and D, where you have a percent chance to learn, and uh, um. You, uh, I'm pretty sure that's an RC as well. Uh, I don't think so. I could be wrong. Um, let me uh, let me look. But continue. I really like the system that's in Holmes and in AD&D, where you have a percent chance to learn, and then you uh, have so many spells you can know. I like that system. I um, I typically don't use it uh, because. Well, first of all, I'm usually uh, using pregens. So when I use mm-hmm. pregens, the spells are already selected, and that's what you have. Uh, when I do have character creation, I guess because I'm a big softie, a lot of times I'll just let the people pick what three spells they have in their spellbook starting out. I've also seen the argument, I've not done this yet, but I think it's a good idea, um, of having one second-level spell in your spellbook. And you can't cast it yet, but it's there. So when you do get to that level, even if you haven't found a... a scroll to copy in or an other wizard spell book to copy from you have that one second level spell available to you i have also seen that argument um i don't remember where but i i've also seen that let me see here i guess i think you might be right about percent chance to know a spell in rc i'll do a little more digging um i really like the percent chance to learn and then the minimum and maximum uh if i'm running like if i'm gonna run by the book spell casting that's how i would do it because i i love the i i don't like the bx rule of you have one spell per day and you have one spell in your spell book and the spell you can cast per day is that one spell i like the the magic user being able to kind of tailor what spell they need to use um, or what they think they might need to use for that day. Cause the, the only logical chance for first level is sleep. If that's your only spell. Mm-hmm. Or uh, a charm person can be pretty useful. Charm person is also really good. Yeah. So Courtney, if you played a magic user and uh, you were you were given the options of of how how to select your spells. What would be your preference? Would you would you like to roll randomly? Would you like to be able to pick them out yourself? Mm. I think I would like to pick them out. Mm-hmm. At the very least, do you get two? At the very least, roll for one and pick one. But mm. I feel like if you roll and you just get nothing. <laughs> And you're not going to let me even throw a rock. So (laughs) (laughs) I'd let you throw rocks. Thank you. Thank you. Then, you know, I mean, if then I'm just, I'm why why go? Like, I'll just stay here guys. (laughs) I'll cook dinner. See when you get back. 
Now, I would let you throw a rock. I just don't think it's aesthetically pleasing. <laughs> well, I would rather die. I would rather provide you with other options that are more interesting and more powerful. That's what I'm saying. What's more powerful than a thrown rock? <laughs> that kills a giant in the Bible. For real? Supposedly. Yeah. Uh, I do like the elegance of the amount of cleric and uh, magic user spells in BX being uh, a correlation to a polyhedral die. Yeah. Like, very smart. So it's like, what spell do you know? And then you roll a d12, and it's like, all right, you know read magic. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'm sure that's absolutely intentional. It's super on purpose, yeah. I think finishing up... We got to talk about the the elephant in the room with magic users is the the argument of the quadratic magic user versus the linear fighter mm -hmm. and sort of the power jump that magic users experience, which really doesn't happen until fifth level. So actually lower than I think you would expect, but still like fifth level is nothing to sneeze at, you know, that's when you start getting into the stuff that like. Your wizard just will steamroll an encounter for the most part, or or make it extremely uh, uh, less difficult. That's when you start getting stuff like clairvoyance and fireball and fly. Yeah, but or uh, making everyone invisible. It, it's it's kind of um, it's kind of the same as your first level sleep, right? You only get one. Mm -hmm. You only get one fireball. Yeah. And then you're done for that that run, you know. So it's sort of it's sort of in that same area. Um I I kind of think the the quadratic magic user versus the linear fighter is is almost like a non-issue in a lot of ways. Like one you're all on the same side. So if, yes. if the magic user can blast a room full of goblins with a fireball, then that's good. Um, you know, that just helps everyone. But on top of that, you know, this is stuff that's kind of mitigated by the fact that at this level, the, the, the fighter should have magical shields and swords and, and, and be a little bit more, um, uh, have a little bit more staying power than, mm -hmm. than just what's, what's a mundane warrior might have. Um, and because of that, I feel like it's almost like the fighter is an equipment class before. Yeah, that. no, it, it is. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm, it's not something that I'm concerned with, you know, whether the, the magic user becomes more powerful. Uh, you know, it's one of those things that if you're, if you're not running a lethal game, mm -hmm. then it becomes like a, uh, this foregone conclusion that you are just going to get there. You're going to get to that level and be that powerful. Yeah. And I think it's just important to note for prepping, you know, if, if yeah, you should definitely know what the spells do and what they have access to at these levels, because this is the area where they start being able to just be like, I don't want to do that encounter and being able to, to circumnavigate it. Mm hmm. And then eventually, you know, they can talk to demons and, like, kill everyone in a town with a poison gas cloud. I also think that the quadratic wizard versus a linear fighter is, like, a non-argument. It's like, 
all right, cool. Like, if I was on a football team and I had a quarterback who had, like, a cannon for an arm and he was able to take us to state every year, I wouldn't be mad at him. I'd be like, we're winning because of this guy. Like, way to go. I guess if, like, if he got a big head about it, be like, ah, he sucks. But, like, I'd still... I don't know. This is this this got away from me. <laughs> this like uh, analogy. Um, but yeah, like no, it's it's cool that you know my my wizard buddy can turn me into like an ogre, and now I fight as an ogre. I think that if we if everyone just remembered it was a cooperative game, like it mm. would not matter as much. Yeah, it, like especially because you know you're. You are still limited by spell slots uh, up to a certain point. And then I guess if your wizard wants to spend all of their time and money making scrolls so they just are the Batman wizard. I don't know. I think that's cool. Like, that's a cool thing that they can do. I wouldn't be mad at them. Like, the wizard spends a year making a hundred scrolls of fireball. Um, You know, I think uh, I think there's this desire to be almost vie for attention is where mm-hmm. it comes from you know like i want to be the hero of this story even though it's not really designed to be that you know it's not really designed for you to be um the uh, main character right yeah where you're you're all in this together and you're all playing a game together you're not really you're not really it's not really designed even though it, i do think Dungeons and Dragons is a exercise of a uh, of a uh, literature reenactment in a sort in mm-hmm. a sort of way. Um, it's not really a a um, a game of story structure reenactment. Um, mm. It's genre reenactment. Um, so the idea of you being more important than the other characters is, I think, a bad seed to begin the game with. Mm-hmm. Should probably just find a way to kill that character off and then not let him come back. <laughs> They're probably oh not God. a good person. I was thinking about this earlier today of, you know, like the wizard magic user. Gosh darn it. The magic user being like very weak at lower level, not really having, you know, I wouldn't want that person in a fight because they're just going to die. They're collateral damage of thinking like in easy, medium, hard mode for TNT, like. Um, I'm gonna play a fighter. That's easy mode. I'm gonna play a cleric. That's medium mode. And then I'm, I'm gonna play a wizard, magic user. Gosh darn, I I can't stop. I'm gonna play a magic user. That's hard mode, which I don't think has any water. But I thought it was a fun <laughs> and like I was like, yeah, I guess you could think of it that way if you're like explaining it to someone who's brand new to classic D and D. I mean, I think there's there is some element to that because you 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 can play pretty dumb as a fighter and it's a, just a little bit more forgiving than playing mm-hmm. dumb as a wizard. Um, but only a little, I mean, that's kind of what I was saying earlier. I, I, I don't think yeah. any of these characters are, are that powerful at first level. You know, the wizard, no, they're absolutely not. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, and if your dice fall where they may, and that's your style and not everybody is, and I don't think there's any wrong with, with adjusting <laughs> that, but it could be that you have four hit points as a wizard and one hit point as a fighter. I mean, it could be, that you have seven hit points as a wizard and one hit point as a fighter. That's mathematically possible within Dungeons and Dragons. Um, 
at first level. And I mean, that's, you know, it's just, it's, it's more swingy of a game than I think people give it credit for yeah. or, or remind themselves, you know, you can throw that fireball at, at fifth level and do five damage. <laughs> you know, this, this is mathematically possible. It's a very mm-hmm. swingy thing. Um, uh, you know, you can cast your sleep spell and roll it two. And put two hit dice to sleep, and you didn't really save anybody from anything. Usually it works out, but it doesn't have to. The class acts are always really interesting because you get to kind of delve into the history and the different ways that these little nuances of how magic users are different between all the different versions of classic or how clerics were started. And, like, I don't know. It's it's interesting. I, I do agree that, like, everyone's on the same team it there's nothing to fight about you should be happy that your buddy just saved your skin so i I think that's that's that for that and i think that'll probably wrap up the discussion on magic users for this episode uh we have a couple emails which we'll get to in just a second before we get to those i do want to ask so the class act episodes were started by James Spawn and Eric Tinkar and Glenn uh, Halstrom. And and so we have done, we finished this series. This would be the last class act. So if you're a listener and you would like us to go back and discuss some of the classes that the other hosts have discussed, which would be elves, halflings, and thieves... Those are the ones that uh, the this version of Save or Die has not covered. Um, uh, please let us know, because I'm, I'm curious to see if you want the class acts to be done or if you want to hear our thoughts on those other classes. I would 100% like to put in that I would love to do those other classes. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, uh, I... Uh, uh, for that, you can write us. We've said it a couple times. Uh, write us an email at questions at saverdie.info, or you could go to our Facebook page and hit us up there, uh, or uh, join our Discord and talk to us there as well. And before we end the show today, we uh, have a couple of emails that have popped up since our last email mailbag, hot tub, liquor store, fireworks stand <laughs> episode. Um, so Courtney you want to read that first one from Leroy yes Leroy wrote dear Mike Liz and Jim just kidding I was wondering if you might take the time to discuss this issue of light in the campaign the use of torches lanterns magical light etc in the dungeon do many DMs worry about it much anymore I know I certainly do how do you track the burning time of the light sources any neat tricks or tips Besides doing it the old-fashioned way, how do you play it out when the gnome drops the torch to fight the ogre? What about dropping the lantern? What are your thoughts on the abuse of continual light spells? How often do complications come up in your game? By this I mean sudden gust of wind, sudden exposure to water traps. Thank you for taking the time to read my email. Leroy. Uh, this is actually an email that spawned from a conversation we were all having in the uh, the OSR Gaming and Wild Games Productions Discord. There's a link in the show notes uh, where we had talked about that. Carl, how do you handle light in your games? How do you address all of Leroy's questions? So I have to admit, I don't really track time 
you know, it's something I kind of hand wave, uh, you know, so I'm not really a stickler for like, okay, it's been 30 minutes or torches about to, uh, uh, burn out or anything like that. I kind of, I, I just say they either have to have a torch or a lantern or another type of light source, but I don't, I don't do a very good job of, of, tr- of being very adamant about time tracking. Uh, you know, if it's a long game, uh, it's something that I'll go, oh yeah, that torch is probably no good anymore. But for the most part, I just hand wave that part. But I do make there be some specific differences between a torch and a lantern. And I'm not sure if this is historically accurate or accurate to the two types of tools we're talking about. But I make torches much easier to be put out than lanterns. Um uh, to the point of like, if you set your torch down on the floor, there's a percentage chance that it's going to go out. And I don't do that for lanterns. Lanterns are fine to be sat down. Um, it's just a way to differentiate between those two items and to kind of justify that higher cost point for a lantern. Um, I, I'm kind of hesitant to let people really spam continual light spells uh, to the point where I would be fine with making continual light something that you can do on an item. And once you cast continual light on another item, you've moved your continual light. You haven't cast two continual lights. Um, uh, and that's just to keep light as, as an issue in the game and, you know, to keep everybody from having their kind of like gold coin necklace around their necks that have a continual light spell on it. Um, as far as like gusts of wind and water traps, uh, fairly often, um, usually undead, when I have those present, I will talk about uh, kind of a, a eerie feeling and an and ill wind in the air coming towards you. And so necromantic magic kind of seems to carry that with it uh, in my games. And they will put out your torches a lot of times. So now you're fighting the undead in the darkness, which isn't a big hindrance for them because they're magically motivated. They can find you in the dark, but you may not be very good at finding them. Hmm. So I disagree um, with almost everything you said, actually. <laughs> <laughs> awesome that's great which is a first i think um so addressing the points kind of one by one um i don't know how many dms really worry about light anymore like if we're talking about you know in the context of fifth edition there are light mechanics but i don't think they're as i don't want to say brutal but as stringent i guess as they are in classic D. it's more like you know, if you attack beyond your torchlight, you have disadvantage. So, if, and that's fine. That's like whatever. Um, I do actually keep track of time in dungeons. I have uh, how I do it is I have a little wheel that I got through Drive Through RPG. It's pay what you want now. I can put a link in it. It's a it's a turn tracker for Labyrinth Lord, and I just keep track. It's got you know, it's a wheel that gets spin a ticker and you know it's got your random encounters it's got the duration for torchlight it's got the duration for lantern light and um making players keep track of those resources i have found really does kind of change the the way the game is played a little bit because it becomes like you put resource management as like a forefront as like a forethought and you know if if they're in the middle of a fight and then their torches go out or, you know, right before a fight and their torches go out, 
then you get all kinds of neat, neat little surprises and stuff like that, since monsters always have dark vision. I don't really mess with the light sources too much. I will if there's water um, or like a strong gust, but I don't do it like super often. And I believe uh, coming from like a realism standpoint, uh, a torch, which is just, you know, a club dipped in pitch, which is tar. It won't go out if you set it down. So I don't do that to people. I'll let them set their torches down to fight. Um, I think the thing with the lantern, like, I do think Carl's right that you do have to differentiate between the two of them. But I believe the duration and also the price investment for, like, how much effective light you get out of a torch with um, pints of lantern oil or flasks of lantern oil um, I think that's kind of the main difference. Also, if you have like a hooded lantern, like a bullseye lantern, you can focus the beam. Uh, I don't know if that's actually in BX or if it's something that I house rule, but that's another thing that you can do. And then as for continual light spells, I think that if a player wants to go and spend a bunch of time uh, like out of game or well in game, but like during their downtown to make it so they never have to worry about running out of light again. Um, I am fine with that because you don't really get continual light. The earliest you can get it is third level. So you're already starting to get into the expert set of rules. So for me, if they want to devote the time to make a bag of continual light rocks or like a pouch of continual light sticks or something like that. That's totally fine with me. I think it's a neat creative problem solving, especially because if they do opt to do continual light as their only second level spell until they reach fourth level, then like, yeah, you do you. So that's, that's my thought process on there. I don't typically DM, so I don't keep up with any of it, but I don't know why he thinks that player would just drop their lantern as if it were going to bust everywhere we always as D&D players delicately set down our lantern so that a dm could never think that it would crash and break everywhere who would be so careless <laughs> see and i could see that as an, as an argument for why a torch might be might be better because like True. though a torch actually won't go out if you drop it um I think you can even drop it in like shallow water and it'll still because it's pitch. It's like it's tar, um, you know, unless it's submerged to where there's no oxygen feeding the flame. Uh, but like a lantern. Yeah, if you knock a lantern over and the oil spills out, you're out of a lantern. So I think like the inverse is actually true that like dropping a torch would be fine, but dropping a lantern would be there would be a higher chance for it to like break and lose your light source that way. Yeah. Well, I would, I would imagine as you sit down your lantern, um, and of course I, I, uh, (laughs) I'm, I'm, I'm resistant to being wrong on this, (laughs) but I think I might be. Um, I, I honestly do think you are like, I do believe torches will still burn if they're dropping on the ground. Well, why don't we ask, uh, Hey, Hey listeners, Hey, listeners, I have a request, listeners. If I am totally wrong on torches uh, being more likely to go out if you sit them on the ground as opposed to lanterns, uh, email us at questions at saveordie.info and say, Carl's wrong. That torch will be fine. 
And make sure, uh, yeah, make sure your subject is Carl's wrong. Yes, yes, it should definitely be all in capital letters. Yeah, as well with as many exclamation points as you feel comfortable using. Throw, uh, I believe, throw, throw in some ones. <laughs> I do know that if you have a torch in front of your eyesight, realistically, you you are effectively light blind. Mm-hmm. Uh, Carl, I think you might be wrong. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you this. No one's ever questioned me on it when I'm running the game. They're like, okay, I guess torches go out if you sit down. I don't know. Anyways, let's move on to the next email. So we received an email from John. John says, I'm just trying to work it out exactly what the difference between basic expert remastered and old school essentials is. Do these cover the same edition of D&D? Is it just a difference in presentation? What makes one unique over the other? Is it worth getting both? That's a and tough one. Go. Carl, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> I would say old school essentials overall to me sounds like a more faithful adaptation of the fantasy role playing game from the early 1980s. Um, I would say um, BX Remastered seems more um like some new takes on some new ideas and 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 uh while old school essentials has some new ideas those are kept in separate books so there will be a version of old school essentials that will be the closest retro clone that has ever retro cloned um Mm -hmm. now you know what your preference is going to be determined on whether you want the closest retro clone that ever retro cloned or if you want to see those new ideas and that might be the reason you get both is because you want a retro clone that is um very similar the most similar retro clone there ever has been uh to the game it's based on which is bx dungeons and dragons um now the benefit to old school essentials if say you're playing bx and you're doing fine and you're not having any trouble it's still organized so cleanly and Mm -hmm. uh so so thoughtfully uh for use at the table um which you know uh bx i think is very usable at the table it still has some problems um it really cleans that up and makes the information kind of presented to you the way you would need it during play and that just comes from playing for a you know long long time you play this game long enough you realize oh that's the information i need now um uh you know and that's just that does kind of increase the page volume because it it provides you information in multiple spots that uh, doesn't happen in the bx books you know for example saving throws it gives you the saving throws for each monster as opposed to just a reference number um to where to locate that saving throw um so for me, I, I would want both. I would want to have old school essentials and BX remastered because I love seeing those new ideas that people bring to this game. Uh, you know, and it doesn't necessarily mean I shift away from BX. It just means I take those ideas and integrate them into my game. So um, that's the difference in the two. One is uh, while they're both based on the same system, one is a faithful adaptation and one is a a set of of house rules and new concepts to add to your game i think the other benefit between them is um i i believe bx remastered goes up a few more levels than core bx uh whereas old school essentials 
has an all-in-one book option as well. That's their rules tome. So instead of five different books, that's another thing between them is BX Essentials is... Not BX Essentials. Sorry. Old School Essentials uh, is five booklets. And it's sort of like the core tenets of you know, BX split into more digestible chunks. So you have character creation rules in one booklet. You have all the spells in another, which if you decide to get B, uh, basic expert remastered over old school essentials, I still think you should definitely pick up the spell book. It's amazing. Uh, and then it's got your dungeon design rules in one booklet. And then it's also got your monsters in one booklet. So it's got all these different things, you know, the core game rules in its own booklet um and then if you don't want to lug all those around you can get it all in one so instead of having two booklets or five booklets you just have one and then uh basic expert remastered is just sticking to a player book and a dm book so it's organized more like the 1983 basic set the mincer set than it is like the bx set which is my actual preferred organization. I like single book, but I do find having players books and and dungeon masters book being separate uh, is it's just a lot less to kind of hand to somebody and say this is the game we're going to play, um, mm-hmm. uh, and that's felt more in a game with multi like if you were playing advanced D for example if that was all in one book it would be a huge tome to hand to somebody but if you can just hand them the player's handbook that's just 140 pages or so and it's it just feels less like an investment yeah i mean like the players options or players booklets for for bx and and um like beck me it's really like if you're just doing you know the basic and expert sets it's only like 96 pages. It's, it's less than 100 pages, mm-hmm. um, which is great. I prefer all-in-one personally. I want a book that is the monsters, the player rules, the dungeon design rules, the treasure, all of that in less than 150 pages. So <laughs> that's why uh, I, I love BX. But uh, hopefully that clears that up. So uh, in summation... Basic Expert Remastered is kind of a new take on these old rules, whereas Old School Essentials is uh, just restate very faithful, um, I want to say reprinting almost, of the rules, but in a new uh, organizational structure. All right. Well, I think that'll be our show for this episode. Uh, Don't forget to stay tuned after the end credits for our actual play segment. Yeah, so for Save or Die, I've been uh, Crispy, a, a blood arch that the players thought was going to be something evil. They didn't investigate or test too much, and that they've wrapped a rope around and pulled down, shattering me, causing me to explode like a retributive <laughs> strike from a staff of the Magi, <laughs> killing the party. <laughs> so you won, really. <laughs> that's how my. Uh, that's how the AP. Uh, X2 game ended. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. The audio got lost. Oh, no. I had a TPK. Um, and I've been Carl, and I found out my apprentice's names. It's Larry, Curly, and Vitruvius the Wise. <laughs> <laughs> and I am Courtney, a thief who stole four 
magic potions, but unfortunately, I don't know what they are. <laughs> Ooh. And like Courtney always says, Peace out, Cub Scout. The Saver Die Podcast is a production of Wild Games Production, and it's produced for entertainment purposes only. The music used in the intro and outro is by Tripod and used with permission. Be sure to visit the Saver Die crew at saverdie.info for more information. If you'd like to support this podcast, please go to patreon.com slash WGP. So you like AD&D 2nd Edition but no podcast to listen to? Guess what? We got the cure right here. I got a fever. And the only prescription is the Thaco's Hammer Podcast. You want me to put the hammer down? Join DM's Glenn, Brian, Corey, and full-on gamer as they discuss, debate, and review the world of 2nd Edition AD. Yes. Go here. Give me a jit. Yeah, that's that's DM Corey ordering drinks. Sorry, sorry, girlfriend's getting gin. Rules, modules, supplements, clones, everything 2E is fair game. Someone lied to you, and there's an opposed role, and oh, they won, so you believe the lie. I know, but I don't, because I, the player, know that they lied to me. But Mm -hmm. you, the character, have to act like you take the lie. So listen to a podcast where number two is number one. The Thaco's Hammer Podcast, the best damn second edition ADD podcast ever. You'll find it on iTunes or at Thaco'sHammer.info. Are you enjoying the show you're listening to right now? Great! Why not head over to Patreon.com slash WGP and support that show for as little as dollar a month. Dollar a month goes a long way to helping support the network Wild Games Productions. Again, that's Patreon.com slash WGP. Thank you. Hilda and Leothward are in the dungeon of Xenopus. They've just made it past a room full of immobile skeletons. And through punching and thinking, they made it through there unscathed. They are now in a chamber with Jan, Cooper, Eric, and Brother Bowen, the mercenaries, called the Red Shields that they have begun traveling with. In this chamber, there are three doorways, other than the door that they have come through. One that goes to the west, one that goes to the east, and one that continues south. Jan, standing behind Leothward, says, To the left, to the left. <sighs> That's right, we did discuss going to the left. El- Elven Wisdom? I think, yes. <laughs> yes. What do you guys want to do? So we're facing south? You are currently facing south, as Hilda will easily point out. This room is empty, aside from doorways. Uh, and there's a door on each side of this square room. The room is 40 feet by 40 feet. Uh, and there's a door heading north, which is where you came from. And there's a door continuing south. And there's a door on each wall to your left and right. I say we go to the east. Did we hear anything coming from doors? Would you like to listen at some doors? Yes, the door to the left. Okay. Uh, will you roll a d6 for me? You want a low number. Four. 
Uh, you cannot tell uh, what's beyond this door. You're not discerning any noises. Seems safe to me. <laughs> well, I mean, it's you're, you're not dumb. You know that that doesn't mean necessarily there's nothing bad behind there. Uh, you just know that you cannot perceive what it is. Seems safe to her. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it. Um. Okay. I will open the door. Okay. Pulling it towards myself. Okay. Uh, it opens fine. And beyond it, you see a 10-foot hallway that ends in another door. Hmm. Ooh. I'm going to go and listen at that door. I rolled a six. You are unable to discern any information from your listening to the door. Ooh, spooky. Uh, can I go down there with him and listen? Sure. I rolled a two. Hilda, as you place your ear to the door and uh, you know, shush everybody and Eric's kind of singing a song back there that, that he remembers Leah Thward humming earlier. Um... <laughs> Uh, you shush them and you put your ear to the door and you hear what sounds like the squeaking of mice or rats beyond this door. Can I tell how many? You're not sure uh, an exact count, but you can tell that there are many of them. Hmm. Do we want to go the other way? <laughs> or do we want to fight these things now? Hmm. <sighs> I don't know. Um, we can go back. Do we want to try a different door? I think so. Let's go west. West? Okay. Eric says, yeah. what, what about the elven wisdom? I don't... Where, why are we abandoning this path? Elven wisdom also says that it's pretty cool to not have rabies. <laughs> okay, I don't know much about elves, so I, I, I believe you. Um, I think we should... Shut the door. Okay. And stake it shut to keep the rats from coming after us. I don't have any stakes. Um, Cooper will pull out a stake and a hammer and and uh, spike the door. Okay. Uh, before he does, he says, uh, "I have to warn you. This will make quite a bit of noise." Oh, hold on then. <laughs> Is there any furniture? in the room? No, it's totally empty. Hmm. Could we risk it? how the other doors open up? To uh, all of these doors open inward into the room. What side are the hinges? Uh, the side that would make them open up into the room. <laughs> what am I? I mean, like, what am are I, they a carpenter? on the <laughs> left or right side of the door? I mean, they could be on either, I guess. I mean, yeah, but I mean, I guess left. Okay, that's good. <laughs> okay, so here's what we do. We'll let Cooper spike the door open, and then we'll hide in the blind spot that the doors opening into the room create in the uh, like southwesternmost corner. That way, oh, I see. What if anything busts through, we'll actually have the drop on them. Yeah, it'll give us a slight advantage at least. Yeah, <laughs> I like it. All right. Well, then, let's chill out in the corner 
and see about getting that uh, that door spiked. Okay. You guys chill out in the corner. And Cooper pulls out a spike and a hammer, and he hammers down the doorway to where it cannot be pushed open from the other side. Uh, it does make quite a bit of noise, but you do not notice any movement coming to the room or any movement coming from behind the doors, any sounds, any noises at all. Uh, it seems that if anything noticed the noise, it did not investigate it. Okay. Cool. Um, which way do we want to go next? West. Okay. We uh, open the door to the west. Okay. Uh, you open the door to the west and it opens up into a long hallway. Uh, a hallway so long that it actually um, leaves your torchlight before uh, it ends or goes any other direction. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> do we want to shut that one and go open the south door? <laughs> um, or do we want to venture down this hallway? Let's venture down this hallway. Okay. Oh, I guess everybody doesn't have night vision. Just you and me. <laughs> right. Yeah. And you do have a torch lit currently. I believe uh, uh, Leothward is holding it. Uh, am I holding it? I know I supplied one of the torches. Yeah, I believe you're in the middle and you and Eric are in the marching order in the middle. So either okay. you or Eric are holding it. Well, I have a two-handed sword, so I'll okay. probably give it to Eric. All right, Eric will hold the torch. He's happy to have a job to do. Eric. <laughs> so, as you walk down the long hallway and your torchlight continues to crest the edge of your vision, uh, eventually it comes to two doorways on opposite sides of the hallway. But the hall continues past these two doorways. Um, as you approach the doorways... Uh, you see the hall continues for a long time uh, outside of your torchlight, but the doorways are now next to you, one to the north and one to the south. So how long do you think, like how far into the hall would you say that the um, the two doors are? Uh, you can determine that, uh, especially with uh, Hilda with you. She'll she'll be able to tell you exactly how long you've you've gone in this underground structure and where you're at now, as far as feet away. So you're about um, fifty feet into this hallway. Do we want to continue down, or do we want to try one of these? I uh, can I hear anything at these doors? Uh, give me a die roll. I'll check one if you check. I'll go north. Four. I got a one on the south door. Hilda, you are just not sure. You're you're not sure if you can determine uh, anything behind this door at all. Um, Crispy, you are fairly positive that the room to the south is empty. Okay. There's no noise to be heard, and you're pretty sure you would have heard it if there were. Hmm. Uh, I'll relay that information to the rest. I think we should open it. I mean, just because there's no... Uh... Nothing in there that we can hear doesn't mean there's not anything in there to sleep or treasure. Yeah, let's open the door. Okay. It opens up into a 30 foot by 30 foot empty room. There is nothing else in there except the stonework. Plain stonework in this room and nothing in there. It all looks like natural stonework? No, it, it's definitely carved out. It's, it's a 30 foot by 30 foot square room, but there's nothing inhabiting this room at this time. 
Is there any furnishing or anything like that? No, it is. Or any, like, so it's just an empty room. It's just an empty room. Anything look different about the flooring? No. Do I look up? Is there anything up on the ceiling? There is not. Nothing on the ceiling. What about the walls? Does anything look funny? You take some time and look at the walls and see if there's anything out of place. Hilda gives it a look over as well, I assume. And um, uh, No, it seems to be just an empty room. Hmm. All right. Uh, do we want to try the door to the north? Sure. I already listened. I didn't hear anything. Yeah. Let's just uh, let's push ahead. Do it. Yeah. Uh, you open the door to the north, and it also opens up into a much smaller empty room. This empty room is only um, 30 foot wide and only about 10 foot long. So it's almost like a quarter that never got finished. Um uh, which it would run parallel to the quarter you're in. So you're not sure why they would be working on this, or maybe they're going to dig out this room 30 foot back as well for some purpose. But whoever is, is working down here, uh, this is, uh, this has not been completed. So it is like unfinished stone or is it, it's like rough stone or it's, does it look as though it's like finished stone on the, um, two short walls and mm-hmm. finished stone on the um, wall on the face of the door that you came in through. But the, uh, the wall directly in front of you is, is just being carved away. So it, it's, it's in the process of design. It seems like. Is it clean? Uh, at, at, with your, with your dwarfy dwarfiness, uh, you, you kind of feel like this is actually pretty recent work. So it's dusty and stuff like that. It hasn't been like, Right. This is a work in progress. Okay. People are chipping away at this. Some creature of some sort is chipping away at this. Are there any tools or anything in the area? No. It is empty other than the apparent work in front of you. Hmm. Weird. What's the uh temperature like in here? Is it is it dry? Is it damp? Um the the whole cavern system that you're in and it's all I mean uh uh uh, so here's the thing. This is the dungeon that Xenopus had created long ago, but this is new work. So that's strange in and of itself. But the entirety of this place, and you're coming from a town that's near water, um, but the entirety of this place has a sort of dampness to it. Any dirt look like it's been recently disturbed or anything like that? Uh, no, it doesn't look like anybody's been in here uh, very recently. Okay. Should we continue going west? Uh, yeah, I guess so. All right. As you march down the quarter, uh, you come to another doorway. This quarter comes to an end at a solid-looking door. Does this door look different than the other doors that we've seen? It looks a little bit sturdier, a little bit better constructed. Uh, I, I would like to listen at the door. Okay. Roll a d6, please. I got a one. Okay. There are no sounds coming from this room. <laughs> Starting to seem abandoned down here. Should we open it? Yes, I think so. All right, let's let's open the door. Be prepared, though. They could be coming back for work at any time. You push open the door, and as it opens into this room, you see the visage of a wizard pointing its finger slowly turn to face you. Caught off guard at first, you realize that this is a large stone statue. 
It's about six foot tall. You are now standing there, the door open, still in your hands, with the statue pointing towards you. What do you do? A statue? A statue. And what it turned? Look it like? turned towards you. It looks like a wizard. Are we in? Do we go in the room? You are currently standing in the doorway. So the I opened the door and the statue rotated towards me? That's correct. I wonder what happens uh-huh. if we sh- go in and shut the door. Will it rotate away from us? I could try. I, I'll close the door partway to see, like, if the statue rotates with the door. So only you are walking into the room? Uh, yeah. I'm not walking in yet. I'm just, like... <laughs> Half shutting it back. Half shutting the door to see what the statue does. Okay. You pull the door towards you a little bit, and it's it's not pulling towards you. It, it seems to be there's some sort of mechanism stopping you from closing that door. What does the room beyond that the wizard statue is in look like? It's very large, uh, and it actually, um, the statue is on the edge of your torchlight, and you can just barely see it. Uh, to the point where you thought it was a wizard uh, actually, you know, turning towards you at first. Um, so uh, uh, beyond that, you can see that this room extends beyond that, but you're not sure exactly what's in it. Oh, is it the same kind of rough stonework, or is it like hewn stone? Uh, it looks the same as the quarter you were just in. It's a little bit nicer than the empty rooms that were going off the sides. Yeah, I guess I'll I'll go in. Okay. I'm going in with him. Okay. Uh, the red shields follow you. Uh, once you're in the room, the door starts to shut behind you. Can we have, uh, was it Eric who had the, or Cooper who had the spikes? Cooper had the spikes. Can we have them spike it open real quick? Um, Cooper uh, runs the door and puts a spike down and the door's kind of closing on his hand and he's trying to spike it as it's closing, but it it's not going to be very effective because he won't be able to sink it in far enough uh, for the door to just not knock it over before... Uh, you know, it moves a little bit more. Um, and then he tries to lead it a little bit, meet it halfway and spike it. Uh, and that almost works. Uh, and the door hits it and he's kind of spiking it, but eventually the door bends the spike and breaks the stone and closes. Mm. So this, the mechanism in the door is stronger than the spike. You are now in this large room with the wizard statue in the center and it's pointing directly at you. What did the wizard statue do when the door closed? Is it still pointing? So it's, it's still pointing it's still at still you. Pointing at yeah. What if we walk to the left? Um, as you keep uh, like just a few steps. Oh, I see what you're saying. No, it is not following you. As you kind of step to the left or step to the right, it is still pointing at that door. Hmm. Are there other doors in this room? As you explore the room a little bit and hold your torchlight up, you see that there are, in fact, three other doors in this room. One going north, one going south, and one continuing west. So, uh, I wonder what happens if we open another door. Yeah. I mean, do we want to... Which door do we want to test? The door to the left of where we came in? That's as good a choice as any. All right. You approach the door uh, to the south. And you, you know, prod it, poke it, look at it, try to open it, and it will not open. Uh-huh. Um, can we listen at it? Mm-hmm. I got a two. Okay. 
uh, you're pretty sure there's nothing beyond this door. Not immediately, nothing you can hear anyway. Does it have like a locking mechanism? Not that you can see. It simply is held shut somehow. The other door was on some kind of mechanism. Can we like search the jam and the hinges to see if this is has a similar setup? Um, you're not sure uh, the design of this door. Uh, it is definitely looks like the other door. It's heavy. It looks the same make. Uh, it's a little bit nicer than the other doors you've seen. But um, as far as like determining the mechanism, that all seems to be hidden, whether it's through clever <coughs> mechanics or magical means. Uh, you're <coughs> unable to see it. Let's try the western door next. Okay. You approach the door to the west and pull it open, and it also stops, unable to be opened. There seems to be no visible lock. It is something is holding this door shut, and you are unable to open it. Let's go back and try. Can we try the uh, the eastern door the way we came? You go back to the eastern door and reach out to open that door, and it opens easily enough, just like any other door, and it is now open, and you okay. are facing that same hallway. Uh, I'm going to go back into the room. Okay. And then can we, I'm going to go to the statue. Can we move the statue? Can we pivot it? Okay. You place your hands on the statue and you start to turn it. And at this point, because you've walked across the room, that door does start shutting on its own, just like it did before, mm -hmm. um, because you were able to easily open it. Nobody seems to panic this time. Uh, and as you start to push the statue, you can rotate it on its base, and it seems to have a slight clicking sound as you rotate it. It stops at another door. Uh, were you rotating it north or south? South. South. It stops at the southern door and is now pointing at the southern door. I'm going to try the southern door. It opens easily enough. The southern door leads into a long hall, like many you've seen. The stonework is unremarkable, but it is uh, well done. Uh, and it heads south to outside of your torchlight. As you follow down the hall, once you've traveled down about 40 feet, in your torchlight, you see 30 feet away from you another door. This is not the, the sturdy iron shod doors that were in the other room. This is like the other doors you've seen in this. Serviceable, uh, nothing special about them. Uh, do we want to listen at this door? Yeah, we do. Oh... Six. Six as well. Okay. You hear nothing. I say we open it. Okay. I'll let you. <laughs> <laughs> I have Jan open the door. Okay. Uh, Jan says, yes, I'll open the door. I do not mind. I can I can do this. I'll open the door. Bear with me. Uh, excuse, excuse me. Pardon me. Coming through. And he reaches for the door and opens it. Beyond the doorway, you see a circular room. This room has a doorway on the opposite side of it from where you've come in. There is a spiral staircase leading up and into the ceiling. The stair ends in a closed trap door. On the spiral staircase, about halfway up, you see a stone figure of a man. He looks a little bit like a bandit, a ruffian. If it is a statue, it was sculpted to be running up the stairs. And inside this room, you hear the sound of hissing. A large snake, about 20 feet long, is coiled up 
on the right side of this room opposite the staircase. And it starts slithering towards you. And that's where we'll stop on today's adventures with Hilda and Leothward as the snake approaches Jan as he just opened the door. And we'll pick this adventure back up in our next episode of Save or Die. <laughs> dun dun dun. <laughs> that was fun. Change all the rules to the game from what they were in mind.